0: Hey everyone, this is Jonathan Capehart. Welcome to Cape Up. In different ways, Lucy McMath and Dewan Patterson are victims of gun violence. And compounding their trauma is the pernicious omnipresence of race. In this episode, you're going to hear one of the most powerful interviews I've ever done. As a mother who lost her son over loud music and a young man who survived being shot in the head talk about the pain of coping with the violence they've endured and a society that still doesn't fully get it.
1: We've always constantly been policed for our emotions. And I, I, I can't, I, I refuse to do that because that little, that, that being inside me can't live.
0: The conversation is deeply personal and raw and may be disturbing for some, but listen to the podcast to find out what they've been through, how they're healing, and how they're trying to help others right now. Duan and Lucy, thank you very much for coming in and being on Cape Up today. Thank you for having thank us. You. Thank so you. You're both victims of, of gun violence uh, in different ways. And Duan, I want to start with you by just Asking you to tell your story.
1: The story of my gun violence champion incident begun going into my senior year in high school.
0: And we're talking Baltimore.
1: Yes. Yeah. East Baltimore, just returning from John Hawkins University, summer job. And while on the bike, traveling to my aunt's house, I picked my head up and I realized there was a gunman at my side. And he asked me to kick all my stuff out, all my belongings, give him everything I had. I looked down and shook my head, but I gave him everything. And if that wasn't enough for him, he told me turn around. And when he told me turn around, I just knew that this may be my last time turning around. He put the gun up over my head. And pulled the trigger. He shot me in the head. I went down to the ground. And. My body began to go into shock. But then I. I had a little ounce of strength. Vision left. But a whole lot of strength left in me. So I got back up. I got back up. Wondering. Looking for help. And now. In the course of me looking for help. I'm stumbling. I look up into the barrel of another gun. This time it was the barrel of the police. And I'm, I'm hearing them yelling, get the fuck on the ground, get the fuck on the ground. And as my family and friends and neighborhood members try to come to my defense, they begin to arrest them and slamming them on the cars and things of that nature. And the only thing I could really imagine and think about was please not get killed in front of my my family members, and my girl cousins in particular, because I could hear them screaming. I wasn't seen as a victim. I was seen as just another N-word, in in many cases, by the police. Not realizing how this was the norm for us within our neighborhood, I just realized I didn't want to become a victim by the police in front of my family and ruin their lives.
0: You have the police yelling at you, threatening your family, with arrest, arresting family members and people in the neighborhood. But who called
1: paramedics?
0: It wasn't the cops, was it?
1: No, the, the police never called the paramedics because uh, that's what they do around my neighborhood. So the paramedics was called by, we call them like neighborhood moms. So the grandma and the old lady on the block, they were calling the paramedics and my defense to making sure that I get the aid that I, I needed. Police police never called them. The amalans arrived maybe about 30, 40 minutes later. And I was laying on the ground just waiting for the paramedics to come and praying that none of my family members were arrested or go to jail. The amalans finally arrived and I'm in the back of the ambulance, and all I can hear is the shouts from everybody at the back of the ambulance while I'm inside. And I just lift my arm up and gave the peace sign to say I was, I was okay. And during the transportation of going to the hospital, I can remember my paramedics voice. She was shouting to the driver. It's like, wrong effing hospital, wrong fucking hospital. And they took me from one hospital in a complete different direction. I ended up in a University of Maryland shock trauma. And I I woke up three days later.
0: Three days later. And as a result of being shot in the head, um, no medical assistance for at least 30 minutes, being taken initially to one hospital, but a paramedic demanding that you be taken to the proper hospital, what nickname were you given by the neighborhood?
1: The neighborhood called me the walking angel.
0: How did that inspire you? Because you're now an anti-gun violence activist now.
1: Yes. um, I refer to myself as a gun violence champion because I championed this issue Or I was not a victim of it. Um, Initially, I was seen as a victim, but I actually am a victor because now I work daily and commit myself to providing solutions for the person in front of the gun as well as the person behind the gun. And that's where I went off to college to study youth violence and aggression, and developing youth programs. Then went off for my master's to understand public policy and institutional reforms on how it could prevent community violence and economical development and things of that nature that would contribute to um, community disinvestment. Mm-hmm.
0: Lucy, the reason why you're here you're the you're the other side of this mm-hmm. this gun violence equation. Your son was the fatal victim of of gun violence. Your mm-hmm. son being being Jordan Davis, who was killed by Michael Dunn in Florida at a gas station in Florida, because his music was too loud.
2: Well, you know that is the way that the com- country responds to our case nationally, but any minority knows that you know, it wasn't really about the music. The music was just basically a vehicle by which Michael Dunn used his defense to carry out his implicit biases and racism towards young black males and using that, they didn't turn the music down, that attitude, they didn't do what I wanted them to do. I felt threatened um, because they were for young black males and Based upon the law in Florida, I have the authority and the right to use my gun to silence people that I believe are, you know, creating a threat towards me and my existence. Uh, And that's basically what Michael Dunn used as his defense, um, is the stand-your-ground law, um, because it's, it's expansive and open as it is. It gives people carte blanche based upon, you know, sometimes they're not even credible threats, and this was not a credible threat to gun down Jordan and to shoot at the the boys in the car.
0: The shooting happened in November 2012. November 23rd,
2: seven months after Trayvon.
0: Talk about the conversation you had with your son after Trayvon was killed.
2: Well, it was a very disturbing conversation because I can remember... I remember it as if it were yesterday. We were standing in my bedroom, my husband in our, our bedroom, and we had just been watching. You know, the, of course, the media played over and over and over again. You could hear the tape of Trayvon saying, help me, help me. Jordan says, you know, Mom, why did that man gun down Trayvon? He wasn't doing anything. Why did he gun him down? And it was just very, you know, disheartening to have to say to my son, baby, you know, there are people in this country that do not value you as a young black male, that don't value black men in this country. And you've got to be very careful where you go, what you do. You cannot walk freely in this country like white America. And Jordan, I just don't understand. I don't understand why this happened. And, you know, I kept saying, Jordan, in the event that you are in an argument or verbal confrontation with anyone, stand down. Stand down. Because nowadays, and this is exactly what I said, people will not use reasonable conflict resolution. They will take their guns out and they will shoot you. And Jordan distinctly said, Mom, that's not going to happen to me. That's not going to happen to me. I can take care of myself. And there's not a day that goes by that that conversation does not haunt at my heart and my soul. Because in the end, no matter how much we did to protect him, to care for him, to raise him the way that we were supposed to raise him in the end in America as a young black male, he was not free or safe.
0: Well, Lester Holt, NBC Nightly News anchor, Lester Holt went down to Baltimore after the, the death of Freddie Gray when there were the demonstrations. And he interviewed a, a young mother. She said something so profound. And it, and it comes to mind, just listening to your answer, Lucy, where she, with her kids around her, she said to Lester Holt, uh, how do you tell your kids how to behave when they aren't doing anything wrong?
2: The only thing that I can think to tell people, and specifically mothers, when they say, what do I tell my children? What do I tell my, my boys, my young male children? How do I tell them what I need to tell them so that they exist and they come home every day? And I say, there comes a responsibility on your part to begin telling them, very, very, very early on, how to protect themselves. And it's very tedious because it's hard to tell them how to support their ideas and support their opinions and to be who they are, but at the same time protecting themselves from people that don't support their ideas and don't support who they are as human beings. And so what I end up saying to them is that don't let them live in fear. Do not teach them to fear, even though they have just cause to fear. You cannot impose your fears on them. And that they still have to walk in reverence as to who they are as a human being, as a young black male, as a young black woman, and, and and to thrive in that. And not to live as if they do not matter. Not to live as if they are afraid, because that's exactly what this country would want you to do. To live as if you are not completely free.
0: But you know, Duan when it comes to the talk, because that's what Lucy is, is talking about here. I remember when I had the talk with my mother, and it was she was speaking as calmly as Lucy um, did just now, but I was raving mad. I was so angry that she was saying this to me. Now we lived in a predominantly white neighborhood, and what precipitated this conversation was the N word slipping out of the mouths of one of my one of my close friends and my mom telling me. Right now, you and your friends are the same. She had her hands at an equal level. She said, As you get older, this is what's going to happen. And the, my, the hand that was supposed to represent me stayed the same, whereas the hand representing my white friends rose. You are no longer going to be equal the older, the older you get. And, Duan, I'm just wondering for you, did you have, was that talk? Um, given to you?
1: Given where I live, I didn't have that talk. I wasn't taught to police myself in such a manner because as I grew older, I learned that it was learned behavior that the police will treat us like this. By the time I was 13, I had my first summer job. I knew that the police would come around and um, they called it shakedown. They would take your money. And for me, I, I knew that I always had to have a pay stub in our back pocket so when they came around and got everybody else i could say this is my money and i have my pay stub so i always begin to rationalize myself mm. to prepare myself for that but when we talk about that talk i now have to talk more than i would have when i was younger so now i'm having a talk with other people who want to try to police me and my being when i speak on that incident it's like well you were shot, and the police could see this. Maybe you should have did X, Y, and Z. They try to tell me all the the ways that I should behave, and it enrages me because I'm saying it's like I have a bullet in my head, bloodstained clothes, gushing, but you're telling me that I am still a threat to you. You're still trying to police me and my being. So, why should I have to always make you feel more comfortable with just me existing? So, Noah, I, I, I cannot submit to, hey, let me go ahead and make sure everybody else is comfortable. And I'm uncomfortable in my own skin every single day. I'm also a writer, and I actually wrote a piece about this. How being a young black man or black man, period, we're constantly under attack from every angle—from the workplace to school, back at home, to even in some of our personal relationships, where we want to lean on someone, and then they're always telling us to man up and suppress these emotions. We're always constantly being policed for our emotions, and I, I, I can't, I, I refuse to do that because. That little that that being inside me can't live, so it's like how do how am I feeling right now and if hey I'm telling the next young man, and I was like, this is what you have to do to survive, not be yourself, make everybody around you comfortable What's the purpose of living if I'm dying just to stay alive every day
0: lucy you're you're the you're the mom here um what would you? Just hearing that, what would you say to Duan?
2: This is so painful, so completely painful, because as, I, as I'm watching him and listening to him, I see the moral injury in him that he will live with for the rest of his life. And I'm looking at him as he were my child, that if Jordan were alive today, he would still be suffering the same way. And that makes me angry. That makes me angry. That our young black men have to live this way. It's just not right.
0: And in the way DeWan put it so eloquently and and passionately, um, you you're speaking not just for yourself and not just for. Um, other African-American men. I mean, I I heard myself in, in what you just said. And there's so much in there um, to unpack. And there are two things um, that I want us to try to talk about. One is what we've been talking about explicitly here, and that is um, implicit bias. Uh, and the other thing is this incredible sense of Powerlessness that we all have to deal with. I mean, I know right now we're talking about African-American men, but this is something that African-Americans, period,
2: mm-hmm.
0: have, to, have to contend mm-hmm. with. How do we go forward?
1: What, co- what comes to mind? I believe we start having these conversations beyond ourselves. We know what we're going through and how it makes us feel. We have to stop being afraid of making people feel uncomfortable. When you're uncomfortable, you grow. If you're not growing, you stand stagnant. And we're not seeing people uncomfortable. therefore they're not growing from this conversation. It's not that black people to say, "Hey, like you need to do something better." And we refer back to years of pictures and videos. When it was a turn of a cheek, fire hose, dogs been sick on us. And it was always trying to make them feel comfortable, make other people feel comfortable without being just our pro existence enrages people. So when we start having those conversations, those, having those challenging conversations, when you're feeling uncomfortable, say, I recognize that maybe I'm not participating in such bias or racist attitudes. But I benefit from it, and what I can do to make amends, make the, let's let's move this this moral gauge forward a little bit more. It's like we're seeing these things that happen consistently on social media, racism and this bias. It's not new. It's mm-hmm. been amplified now. Mm-hmm. So la- now let's go ahead and take beyond being aware, and now let's implicate. You know, let's do something about it. We, we have to move beyond that Now we, we are aware We are uncomfortable Because we are uncomfortable every day in our skin when, we, when you say that Hey, when you go to work They may treat you like this They may look at you like that These little microaggressions that you face When you walk down the street Someone holding their bag They lock their doors And we go in the store, they follow you just, We're constantly being under attack psychologically mm-hmm. And physically, most cases So we have to be uncomfortable One of the key ingredients
0: that I think needs to be there for these types of uncomfortable conversations to happen is trust. And I've said for a long time that while these conversations happen on a peer-to-peer basis around the country all the time, there are lots of people having this conversation, but nationally, I think we as Americans, we don't trust each other Mm -mm. enough to have these conversations. How do, we, how do we gain that trust? Is that even possible?
2: I think we, as Americans, as black Americans, as minorities, I think we have to stop letting America tell us who we are. I think we have to be empowered enough, you know, even as we were talking about what does Black Lives Matter mean, when we talk about Black Lives Matter, well, we talk about Black Lives Matter because we're reminding the rest of the nation and the rest of the world that we are here and we matter. But I think it's more so for us. Recalling to ourselves as a race, as a generation, a culture of people, who we are, and stop letting the rest of the world define who we are. And I think by feeling more empowered to define who we are as a race of people and how important we are to the integrity and the very fabric and being of this country, then in a sense, we're demanding that people recognize these conversations. We're in so many words saying, you're going to listen and you're going to hear what we need to say to you. And we're going to make you uncomfortable because as Dewan said, the only way to grow into change and stimulate change is by stepping out of the boat and being uncomfortable and and you know, delving into the waters of the things that, you know, nobody wants to talk about, you know, except they quietly talk about it at the water cooler at work. Or they talk about it behind closed doors. Or they talk about it to their little community groups or the PTA, but they're afraid to talk about it to the people that will be most affected by the change. You
0: know, one of the things that's um, affecting the change in positive ways, but also a little bit ghoulish ways, is social media. Um, Mm -hmm. The reason that the, the killing of Trayvon Martin took off as a national story is because folks in the community... Black folks in the community went on Twitter, went on social media, and demanding that action be taken. And I think at the, at the CAP event, I believe it, believe it was you, Duan, who said, because of social media, people have no choice but to face this.
2: Absolutely. I mean, I know in the work that I do with gun violence prevention, a lot of the mobilizing I would say, actually, you know, a huge proportion of the mobilizing that we do that we do is specifically done on social media, because that is the way in which people now are communicating, um, and so social media has been become a very uh, important part of creating social movements for justice. And you you really can't have a movement without being involved in it. Mm-hmm. And and knowing that
1: the power of social media, that is the vehicle I chose to use to release my short documentary, Elite Daily, and that was shared by Huffington Post. What I did was I put it in your face, where you cannot refuse to acknowledge that this is exactly happening. And it's a daily thing that happens inside our community often and it's a twofold story of community violence police brutality and i shared that story and i have to put it in your face because i represent what black men and women who are victims of police brutality or gun violence what they can be so when you see you see my story and you see that i survived i represent jordan davis I represent him and I make sure that his story continue to live on and telling his mom that I will be okay. Just as he did when he heard about Trayvon Martin. He did the same thing I did to my mother. Let her know that her baby is okay because that's how she felt. When she told that to me, I feel that. And I have to represent him to present right now. It was like, when I go out here, I have to make sure you know that I will be okay. And I'm representing him. And I will continue to make sure his story lives on because that's who we are. He was unapologetic himself. He said, "Mine, that will not happen to me. He was certain. And it wasn't, hey, let me go ahead and just let me find a way to make him feel uncomfortable. No, I have to live, man. And I will continue to live. And he will continue to live this day. And that's why you're doing the work that you're doing. And I commend you. I appreciate you. And I feel the love. And I thank you.
2: Thank you. You,
0: too. <laughs> you know, um, as an African-American and as an African-American man, the litany of cases of police involved shootings and just shootings of, of African-Americans has just worn down my soul mm-hmm. to the mm-hmm. point where I had already stopped watching the latest video of the week Of someone black being being killed, I just had no, no, I had nothing left Mm -hmm. after having written about all the other ones before, and I didn't understand just how much trauma I was suffering until a neighborhood, um, local official, Mm -hmm. uh, I think it was called it, you know, advisory neighborhood council Mm -hmm. person in my neighborhood came up to me and she said, "So." Are you not going to write about the shooting that happened here? I mean, you write about this stuff all the time, and yet this happened a block away from where we are right now, where you live. And that's when it hit me. Like, I was so numb, no. dead. I remember leaving home that hours after it happened with my fiance. We walked down, I looked down the street and saw the motorcycle. Um of the person who was killed by the police saw it looked at it Same. kept kept on to kept on to brunch and I bring all of this up mm-hmm. um to have us talk a little bit about how do we deal with the trauma how do we deal with this because I know I'm not the only one we're not the only ones uh, who are dealing with this
2: you know. It- in in my line of work now we are dealing with that very thing, the trauma of these tragedies, in particular even in particular with the gun violence survivors. There's no way you can understand the internal trauma that it wreaks on the individuals that are suffering suffering from the gun violence and then even the people that love them and the people that are in their communities and their families. There are not enough organizations in the country that are dealing with the mental crisis of gun violence. You know, we have organizations for Alcoholics Anonymous. We have organizations for breast cancer awareness. We have organizations for people that are suffering PTSD, you know, because they're victims of war, having gone to war. But we don't have any viable means for people uh, that need self-care with the internal mental, physical traumas that they suffer from with gun violence. I would call upon the mental health community to really take a part in creating safer spaces for people to get healing, because that's just not being offered right now. And and the tendency for most people to say is, oh, well, okay, that tragedy, that was that tragedy. And, you know, people go on with their lives and they move on, you know, and there's the next story and the media just goes right on to the next story. But the tragedy, the continuing tragedy, is that, you know, the broken lives of the people that are suffering this every single day. And there is no community help, no community forum, no medical help for them. There, there There's no mental health organization or people that are standing up and wanting to help provide rational means for people to have self-care mm-hmm. to come through these tragedies.
0: What, what about... Um black people i mean it's a it's a myth old wives tale slightly true that we that's not what we do
1: see see one of the things about the trauma trauma leaves no visible scars so and as black people we're so resilient as of a people as a people that we believe that we're okay so the first step is to realize that no we're not okay and that's okay that with emotion, you have to move with it. We, we tend to suppress them and think that we're okay because we have to. And we don't take that time for ourselves. That self-care is really important. And to take it a step further, to go beyond the mental health professionals, it takes community leaders, family leaders to say that, okay, I'm going to spearhead a self-care safe space. Well, we're going to address how do you feel. Are you okay? That's what we have to do collectively. So if it's something as small as a house party of 10 family members, community members, say, how are you doing with X, Y, and Z? What you're doing? We actually had to do that in Baltimore. I shared your sentiments when all the shootings were going on in July and and they were back to back. And this guy, he was in the right, showing his permit, the right to carry, and I was numb. I said, like, I don't, I don't want to know about it anymore. I don't want to share anything no more. But then I realized I had a responsibility to my community because everybody you've seen on social media was growing numb. Like, they didn't know how to feel. Mm-hmm. So what I did was I reached out to, um, it's called the Black Mental Health Alliances, And I said, I need you guys to facilitate and be on guard I'm going to have a safe space where people can unpack their emotions. I had the the trust of the community, and then I had the respect of the mental health professionals. I'm a lead. You support me. And that was so monumental at that time for everybody to unpack their emotions that we didn't even know each other at first, but we had a shared experience.
0: But, Lucy, let me, end, let me end with you, because you are part of an incredible um, but uh, tragic coalition um, of mothers called Mothers of the Movement. Um, all of you are um, surrogates for, for Hillary Clinton. Yes. I mean, one of the things I do believe Donald Trump has attacked you as a group, saying that you're being used by Hillary Clinton um, to pander— to the African American community. If Donald Trump were here right now in this room, what would you say to him about that argument?
2: I would say, Mr. Trump, there is nothing more that can be taken from these group of mothers that are supporting Secretary Clinton. Most definitely the most dear, important human being and a lot of the reason why we were existing and living and breathing has been taken from us. Do you honestly believe that this group of strong, determined black women could ever be used against our wishes for anything that would be in any way, shape or form not at our best interest for our families and our communities and our race of people at large? You are sadly mistaken. You're sadly misguided. And you have no idea who we as a race of people really are.
0: Lucy McBath, Dewan Patterson, thank you so much for coming on. Thank Thank
2: you for having us.
0: Thanks for listening to Cape Up. Tune in every Tuesday. You can find us on iTunes and Stitcher. You know what? Do me a favor. Subscribe and then rate and review us. I'm Jonathan Part of The Washington Post. You can find me on Twitter at CapehartJ.